0: And I want to invite you to turn with me uh, in the scriptures to Paul's letter to the, first, to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians. As we continue in our study of this letter, we're going to be looking today at just three verses at the end of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. There are some Bibles located in the underneath the seats in front of you if you'd like to follow along, follow along. It's also printed there in your bulletin. Let's give attention to God's Word. Or do you not know that the unrighteous You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we have heard the word of the Lord, we now come to you as the Lord of the Word and ask that you would open our minds and our hearts. To receive what you have for us this morning. Lord, you have called us to yourself, and you have given us your spirit that we might know you, that we might walk with you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, do your transforming, changing work in our own hearts, in our lives, and in your body here at Ambassador. Speak now, O God, to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The advent of Jesus into the world signifies, as we heard read earlier from the Gospel of Matthew, the arrival and the inauguration of the kingdom of God here on earth. In the birth of Jesus, God finally and fully fulfills His covenant, His promise to send His Redeemer, His Messiah, His anointed King into this world. And Jesus, the Son of God, was born into this world to reveal the true nature and character of God and His kingdom through His life and His teaching, to redeem a people, for God and for his kingdom through his suffering and death for sin on the cross and to reign over God's kingdom in this present age through the resurrection power of his spirit at work in the hearts and lives of his people, living in community and unity together in the body of Christ, which is his church. And God's word is clear, as we've seen in our look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that it is through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and by believing in and submitting to Jesus as Redeemer and King that by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit, one is enabled to enter in to the kingdom, one is equipped to live in that kingdom, and one is guaranteed the inheritance of the kingdom together with all the saints in every place who are called by God and who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And thus, the church, the people of God, saved and set apart by him, transformed into into a new relationship as children of God, and and transferred into a a new realm as citizens of, of his kingdom under the lordship of Jesus Christ, are called, is called both individually and corporately, to manifest the true nature and testify to the true character of the kingdom of God. And we do that by the way in which we live together in unity and in, in, uh, in love through the work of His Spirit in us. Which is why when the church loses sight of that calling and begins to, to revert to and to, to take pride in the wisdom and ways of this world, we not only lose the distinctiveness of our witness and testimony to Christ and the power of his kingdom, but we actually call into question the reality of that transforming power at work in our own lives. The reality of the new life that we have been given together in the kingdom of God by Jesus Christ will be seen in our living a new lifestyle in the kingdom of God together in Jesus Christ. If there's no change in our our lifestyle in Christ, then we need to ask ourselves if we have truly been changed by new life in Christ. New life is evidenced in a new lifestyle. The reality of life in the kingdom of God will be revealed by the reality of kingdom living in the life of God's people according to God's will. And that truth has been the burden of the Apostle Paul's heart in his writing to the church at Corinth. And as we've seen in our study so far, these, these believers gathered together early in the, the life of the church in the city of Corinth had become boastful about the wisdom and eloquence of various teachers, causing division and disunity in the church. They had been blasé and, and turned a blind eye to blatant and serious sin in their midst, causing defilement and danger within the church. And they were bringing their petty grievances, their quarrels with one another another to the civil courts to be judged by unbelievers, which, as we heard last week, results in defrauding and defeat within the church. And all of this leads Paul, here at the end of chapter 6, to warn them of a hard truth that they know, as well as to... Remind them of a hope-filled transformation that they have undergone. What Paul is doing is bringing them back again to the essence of the gospel. To the hard truth of man's great need and to the the hope-filled transformation of God's provision for that need. And so what I want to do this morning is look at this hard truth and this hope-filled transformation as Paul gives it to us here. And then over the next three weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to take a break from our series here in Corinthians to look more in depth at how Christ's coming, how Christ's appearing brings about this new life and this new lifestyle that characterizes the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. And so let's look at first the hard truth that paul gives having admonished the believers in corinth for for overlooking and even tolerating scandalous sin in an openly incestuous and adulterous relationship of one of their members and then for turning Around and taking their personal grievances and their disputes over, over somewhat trivial matters to be adjudicated by unrighteous judges in the civil courts, Paul reminds them of the hard truth about the kingdom of God in relationship to such unrighteous behavior. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Some translations say the wicked or the wrongdoer. The way Paul frames the question is to imply that, of course, they do know this. He has already said to them at the end of chapter 4 that the kingdom of God is not just about talk, but about power, about life-changing changing power that leads not to arrogant pride, but to humble service and to obedience to Christ. And Jesus himself spoke of the necessity of a righteousness that exceeds that of even the scribes and Pharisees in order to even enter into the kingdom of heaven in his Sermon on the Mount. And if you flip with me over to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, we'll see there Jesus speaking about the final judgment exercised by himself as the son of man when he comes again in all his glory. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is clear. He says in verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations... And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then he goes on and it says, To those on his right, whom he calls the righteous, he will say, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then, skipping down, And to verse 41, to those on his left, whom he calls cursed, he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, what's the difference? Well, you go back and you look earlier. Jesus says, they said, when do we, we come to you? Jesus says, you... The, you ministered to the hungry, you ministered to the poor, you ministered to the naked, the stranger, the sick, the least of these in my name. And in doing so, you did it unto me. And then to those on his left, he says... You did not minister in this way to me. Excuse me. One of these ministered to the hungry, the poor, the naked, the stranger, the sick, in the name of Jesus, and the other, while professing Jesus as Lord, did not do any of those things. In other words, one's changed life was marked by a changed lifestyle that reflected the humility, compassion, and mission of Jesus, while the other's unchanged lifestyle reflected an unchanged life. The one is blessed with the kingdom, the other is cursed with eternal punishment in hell. And that is what Paul is pointing to here back in Corinthians. He's speaking of this future aspect of the kingdom. The inheritance of heaven to which Peter says we have been born again through Jesus Christ, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, being kept in heaven for us. In other words, God has prepared for his children this glorious inheritance. And what God is doing in Christ and through the sanctifying work of his spirit in the body of Christ is preparing us as his children to receive that inheritance by being built up together In righteousness there is nothing corrupt or corrupting in the kingdom of God that awaits those who belong to Christ and thus that which is corrupted or corrupting namely the unrighteous cannot partake of its inheritance what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God what well, means to enter into, into full possession of that which has already been promised to us. The kingdom is promised to those who enter by the way of new life in Christ and whose new life is characterized by seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And because God's kingdom reflects His own character of righteousness and compassion, those who insist on living a lifestyle contrary to the character of God as revealed in the life and lifestyle of Jesus will not in fact take possession of it in the end. Now that's a hard truth. And it's not a very popular or acceptable thing to say or a view to hold either in Corinth or in our culture today. Yo, excuse me. I'm going to take my coat off. I'm really hot up here. <laughs> That is why, thank you. Hm? Yeah, I've got some. Thank you. That is a, a, a hard truth. It's not something that that people want to hear. And it may not be something that even we ourselves like to hear or want to wrestle with because it causes us to, it causes us to confront and to be confronted with our own sin. But that is the hard truth of the kingdom. There will be those who are in and there will be those who are out. And in order that that we might be clear on what kind of things fall into this, this general category of the unrighteous that will exclude one from full possession of the kingdom, Paul goes on to give a representative list of specific types of sin and sinners. But first he says, don't be deceived about this you go over to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul basically makes this very same point about the wicked having no inheritance in the kingdom, and he follows it up by saying, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Don't let anyone try to convince you differently or lead you astray with idle, empty talk, because Paul says there is a judgment that is coming for the unrighteous. and by all means don't deceive yourself on this matter by trying to rationalize away or justify sin in some manner. Hebrews chapter 3 in verse 12 it echoes this warning saying take care Brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you, be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, sin is deceitful. And it will be used by Satan, the master deceiver, to, to harden our hearts towards God. And to cause us to, to stray from the truth of his word and the wisdom of his ways. And so the list Paul gives here, the various types of unrighteous people, reflects in a large part those that he detailed back in chapter 5 verse 11. Speaking of those who are not to be tolerated or associated with in the body of Christ. So it makes sense that these same people are found here, along with a few additional ones, resulting in exclusion from the kingdom. It's just another indication that the, the reign of Christ and the realm of his kingdom is manifested in the, in the communion, in the fellowship of saints in the body of Christ. Well, You might be looking at this and thinking, this does not bode well. <laughs> you may look at this list and think, I was greedy just this past week. Or I was pretty reviling in that post that I commented on, on social media. Some of you know the serious battle of sexual temptation and lust, of pornography or same-sex attraction. Some of you have lost that battle at times. Some of you have committed adultery. If not in body, then in the lust of your minds. Some of you know personally the deep pain that is caused by alcohol or substance abuse and some may struggle with addictions yourself. We can probably all think of times when we've received or given out verbal abuse or reviling towards someone or we've been exploited or exploited others. And certainly all of us know what it is to crave and covet money and possessions and to want more of them. We don't have to look far to find ourselves in some aspect of our lives reflected in the list which Paul gives here. But Paul's not referring here to periodic, or isolated acts of sin. He is not suggesting or promoting the idea that a Christian will not find themselves tempted towards or even guilty of sexual immorality or adultery or drunkenness or greed or any other sin listed here or elsewhere. Paul is speaking of the habitual and unrepentant practice of sin that characterizes a person's life. Paul would agree with the Apostle John in his first letter that if we say we have no sin, we are liars. In the truth, we deceive ourselves. But also like John, Paul is warning against those who willfully practice evil and sin without any sense of repentance, without any resolve to change. These are patterns of sin that characterize a person's life and therefore call into question the character of one's new life in Christ and the reality of that. And Paul's list also reflects the prevailing culture of life in Corinth and indeed life in 21st century America as well. Corinth was a commercially affluent, religiously pluralistic, culturally progressive, highly educated, sexually charged, socially diverse environment. And Paul's list would have been looked on and laughed at by most people in Corinth. And many would have been offended at his categorization of these things as as unrighteous or as sin, rather seeing some of them simply as social ills or sickness to be treated and others as rights and freedoms to be celebrated. And certainly as you look at this list, you can say the same thing is true in our day and time. And as we go through this letter, we're going to look in more detail and more depth at a number of these issues that are so relevant and important to our day because as we'll see, they were relevant and important as well in Paul's day. So don't think we're just going to read this list and then breathe a sigh of relief and move on. Paul has more to say on these matters and so shall we when we come back to this letter in the new year. But Paul's main purpose here is not to, is not to stir up fear. It's not to create doubt or even to render personal judgment on these matters. Paul is simply stating the reality that God is the one who judges and the standards of his kingdom is righteousness. Rather, Paul's main purpose is to once again remind his readers, remind those in the body of Christ of the transformed identity and lifestyle to which Christ has called them and us and for which he has redeemed us and now reigns in us. And that's the hope-filled transformation that Paul turns to in verse 11. Paul follows this this list of notorious sinners who are on the outside of the kingdom with a very sobering yet very hopeful, hope-filled statement. He says, And such were some of you one commentator says we have only to recall the moral cesspit of first century Corinth to appreciate such a transformation in this motley collection of Christians whom Paul addresses as brothers and sisters 20 times in this letter Never had Paul been more convinced that God is able to save to the uttermost all who came to him through Jesus. Every Corinthian Christian was living evidence that God's answer to sophisticated Greek wisdom was not clever arguments, but changed lives. And sitting in that congregation, as well as in this one today, listening to this letter being read were a whole collection of living testimonies to the transforming grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were those there who had been prostitutes, con men, thieves, alcoholics, sex addicts, drug abusers, unfaithful husbands and wives, members of the LGBTQ community, worshipers at the pantheon of temples to greet gods and goddesses, violent and oppressive masters, angry and rebellious servants, corrupt officials, greedy corporate execs, self-satisfied academics, well-heeled elitists, abusers and the abused. Not everyone there or here are marked by those things, but some of them were, and some of you were. But that was the past, Paul says. Such were some of you, but no more. Something changed, and it wasn't the result of social activism. It wasn't because of legislative reform or medical intervention or motivational, program, motivational programs or therapeutic counseling or any other human effort or initiative for change though those things may have their place, it was the power of Jesus Christ in him crucified. The foolishness of the cross which Paul preached and God by his spirit brought to bear in the hearts and lives of those sinners who received it by faith and found forgiveness and freedom and righteousness and joy and peace in the cleansing, sanctifying, justifying work of Jesus. Paul now expresses another of the great statements of the gospel, of gospel contrast introduced by that little conjunction, but, that appears only once here in our translation. But in the Greek, it's used to introduce all three of these phrases describing that hope-filled transformation that these Christians had undergone. That is what some of you were, he says, but you were washed But you were sanctified, but you were justified. No matter how dirty or vile your sin, you have been washed by the blood of Christ and your sin has been cleansed. No matter how worthless and weak your life may feel because of sin, you have been sanctified by the love of Christ Jesus, set apart and holy unto the Lord and made a dwelling place for His Spirit. No matter how guilty and deserving of wrath and judgment your sin is, you have been justified by the atoning sacrifice of Christ, declared not guilty, made righteous and accepted by God as his child. And this is not because of anything that you have done or deserve. It has been done for you in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our gracious God. Many scholars see an allusion and perhaps a reference by Paul here to to baptism, which portrays the realities of, of Christ's cleansing and sanctifying and justifying work on the cross and which marks us out as members of the covenant community, those who have been crucified with Christ, who have died to sin and been raised to new life. And indeed, baptism signifies and represents that once and for all moment of new birth by the Spirit, and entrance into the blessing of kingdom life together in the body of believers that comes by grace through faith in Jesus. But baptism is but the outward sign and seal of the greater inward spiritual reality to which Paul draws our attention here. And that reality is that in Christ... We are not only given a new life as redeemed children of God and citizens of his kingdom in heaven, but we are also called and we are equipped and we are empowered by his spirit to manifest that new life in a new lifestyle of righteousness and of love and of forgiveness and of humble service to Christ and to one another in the body of Christ. And while we may still sin, we are no longer characterized by that sin or defined by sin and thus where we see or experience the sin in our lives or in the church where we look at this list and we recognize those things in our own lives we must not resign ourselves to it but with clarity And with conviction, as new creatures in Christ, with the power of Christ's Spirit in us, we must resolve to turn away in repentance, to put it to death through repentance and faith, to cast off the old way of life and put on the new way of Christ and His kingdom. As I mentioned over the next several weeks, we're going to take a deeper look from some other passages in the New Testament at the reality that Jesus came to to wash and to sanctify and to justify us. And we'll we'll unpack that in more detail about the significance of these things in our lives. But what can we take away from the hard truth and the hope-filled transformation that Paul gives us in these verses? Well, first, as you read the list Paul gives here, Some of you will be able to see yourself at some point all too clearly in one or more of these descriptions. But for all of us, we should see in this list everything that we could be apart from the grace of God. Some of us have been saved out of these sins by the grace of God, and some of us have been saved from these sins by the same grace of God. But every sin on this list still finds some kind of seed in your heart, in my heart. And it only takes a little encouragement. It only takes a little water of temptation here, a little fertilizer of of indulgence there for that seed to sprout and to begin to grow. And brothers and sisters, sin thrives in darkness and secrecy. So don't try to fight it alone. That's why we need one another in the body of Christ. To exhort one another daily so that we might might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. To confess our sins to the Lord and to one another. Whereas John reminds us, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and, and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we need to be a place, we need to be a people where we can confess our sins, not only to God, but to one another as trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, where we can come and, and share together our lives in a way that we can minister the cleansing and forgiving grace of Jesus to one another. And every one of us has stood at some point on the outside of God's kingdom because of our sin. And there may be some of you here today that are still in that place. You're looking at this list and you realize that this is not something you were. It's what you are. <laughs> Such is the state of your soul, where if Christ were to return today, you would find yourself not on his right among the sheep, but on his left with the goats. And that doesn't mean greatest of all time. Friend, may you find encouragement and hope in the good news of the gospel here and now. Jesus says, come to me. Come to Jesus. Bow your knee, bow your heart To the king of kings who lived for you, who died for you, who, who was raised from the grave and now rules over you, receive his cleansing grace. Receive his sanctifying love. Receive his justifying forgiveness and righteousness, which he has for you in Christ. And enter into the blessing of his kingdom as a new creation, no longer defined by your sin, but defined by his sacrifice and his saving grace. And for all of us, be encouraged that even in the midst of unrighteous actions and attitudes by some in the church, Paul remains convinced that the work of Christ is in them. And it is still true, and that he who began that good work will be faithful to complete it. And so let us not give up in in seeking to live out the new life that we have been given in Christ, both individually and corporately, together in the body. Let us not cease to, to put off the old ways of the world and put on the new way of Christ and his kingdom together. To do so will mean the things that have formerly given us security, comfort, status, standing, will need to be counted as loss and even killed. And it will mean that we've, as we've seen, entering into the sacrificial and servant love of Christ and walking with Him in that towards others. And lastly, let us look to and proclaim Christ to those around us who are still on the outside looking in. Our role is not to judge the wicked of the world, but to show them Jesus, the one who has taken their judgment upon Himself, the one who has died that they may and, and, and rose again from the dead that they may be washed and sanctified and justified before Him, the one and only one who can bring about the hope-filled transformation. To new life. Can we pray like that? Can we take the gospel and live it out in word and deed like that to one another? God says, Yes, you can, (laughs) because I am at work in you and I will work through you. May God be gracious. To do this in and through us, whom He has washed and sanctified and justified. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your table, we come again to see the transforming grace that you have for us through your son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life, who offers up his body and his blood for us that we might be redeemed, that we might live under the rule and reign of your kingdom and all its blessings. And that we might be among those who are called righteous and seek to live righteously. Not because of what we can do, but because of what you have done. And so as we come to this table, Lord, we pray that you would work your grace in us through this sacrament. Through your word spoken and now visibly proclaimed in this supper. Father, would you transform us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.